Hello, and welcome to the Cross to Crown podcast, episode 57. I'm Doug Gooden. Thanks for listening. Today, we talk about what Jesus had to do with the killing of an Iranian general, also why men should eliminate feeling from their vocabulary, and finally, more of what makes a man fit to be an elder. So grab your Bible and a cup of coffee, and let's get to work. It's time to put on the mind of Christ. Well, welcome again, everyone, to episode 57 of the podcast, and I have to just say something for those of you who are kind of like my wife, that uh, when things are out of order uh, sequentially, then everything else gets thrown into turmoil as well. You know who you are. Well, some of you noticed that last week's episode was episode 56 and that there is no episode 55. Well, that is true, and that is one of the great secrets and mysteries of the universe, and I am going to leave it to those of you who have great spiritual awareness to determine what happened to episode 55, and if you are the super special elect and have the special gnosis of God, then you can learn from episode 55, and everyone else, you're just out there in the dark, and you will never know what was contained in episode 55. But we're moving on to episode 57 today, and we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about this in the last several episodes about the reign of Jesus and and his kingdom filling the earth. But here's a question I want to put to you to test to see whether or not you really believe that. You ready? So just in the last couple of weeks or so, depending on when you listen to this, An Iranian general was executed by a single missile fired at him by the government of the United States. I'm sure you know about this. It has been worldwide news, certainly uh, all over the place in the American media. So the question is, what in the world did King Jesus have to do with the killing of of this Iranian general. If someone asked you, someone in your congregation, if your your son or daughter asked you, if a neighbor asked you, a coworker, a friend, somebody said, "Hey, you're a Christian, right? And you said that you say that Jesus is king over everything. What well, was Jesus king over this? What would you say? Would you start putting together a bunch of qualifications, clarifications, string together a bunch of sentences and words and explanations of this and that, the other thing, which never really answers their question? Would you answer their question, but with a great deal of hesitance and sheepishness and uncertainty? Would you simply say, I don't know? I don't know what Jesus had to do with this. I think the answer is simple and clear. It's not easy necessarily, but it's simple. Let's remember what the Bible says. The Bible says, Jesus himself said, after he rose from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. 
on earth, he said, has been given to him. Does that mean Jesus is in authority over the gathered church? And when we come together on Sunday morning in our worship services, Jesus is king. He, he's the, the, that powerful figure in Revelation 1 that, and, and, that walks through the lampstands of the church. And, and we as Christians, we acknowledge his kingship, and uh, we need to be careful to, to obey and do church right and, and live well because he is king and he might, he might snuff out the candle of the church. That's his reign. That's his authority. That's his, his jurisdiction is the church. But doesn't go beyond that. Is that the truth? Is, is he reigning in our hearts as Christians? And that means when we have our devotional time, and we pray, and we read the Bible, and we read nice books by uh, good Christian people. Uh, that is Jesus reigning in our hearts, and, and as we strive for righteousness, he's reigning in our hearts. But, but outside of the life of the Christian, the, the world out there, politics, nations, cultures, Jesus is not reigning. Or he's reigning only as Christians do stuff. But non-Christians... The only thing Jesus is really doing is sending evangelists. Is that it? Well, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, you may recall, we saw in verse 5 that John said that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Other passages talk about him being the ruler of the nations, that he will rule the the nations with with a rod of iron. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's present tense. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, there are lots of kings. I'm, I'm not a king, I don't think, in the way that, that, that John is talking about here. Now, obviously, we have a whole king section of this podcast where I'm trying to say that men are rulers, we are kings, and, and I do have authority in certain areas of life that King Jesus has given to me, but it seems to me like John here is talking about the kings, the leaders of nations, uh, this is frequently the way the Bible talks about the kings of the earth, the, the, what we would call dictators, ayatollahs, uh, congress, uh, kings, monarchs, etc., etc., prime ministers. Um, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Is he the ruler of the ayatollah Khomeini? and the the kingship, the kingdom, the, the government of Iran. Another passage that we have talked about that is the, uh, the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, uh, in other words, the, the one Old Testament passage that is quoted the most in the New Testament is Psalm 110, where we are told that the Messiah, when he comes, would sit at the right hand of God until all of the Messiah's enemies are put under his feet. Well, we know when Jesus took that place at the right hand of the Father, that was at the ascension 2,000 years ago. So for 2,000 years, Jesus has been sitting on the throne next to his Father. Jesus is reigning over heaven and earth, and God is in the business of putting all of Jesus's enemies under his feet like a footstool. Is the Iranian general who was killed, was he an enemy of Jesus? How do we as Christians not acknowledge that Jesus had something to do with the killing of that general? 
I don't see how we get around it without removing the authority and kingship of Jesus. We, our minds tend to go to all kinds of other questions that I'm not trying to answer here. Why doesn't Jesus kill every dictator or general? Well, I don't know. And that's not our business. His strategy and how he builds his kingdom and how he takes out his enemies, that's, that's his business. He's not revealed everything that he's doing here. Uh, why do some evil men get to continue on in power for a while? I don't know. Uh, again, that's in, in King Jesus' providence and sovereignty and his strategy and plan. He, he doesn't wipe out everybody that he could. He, God could certainly take out all of Jesus' enemies in, in one swoop, one, one action, but that's not his plan. That's not what he's doing. But that's not the question that we're asking. That's, a, that's an irrelevant question to this one. Uh, why are there evil dictators? Why are there evil regimes? Why, why does Jesus allow that to continue? That, that's, that's his plan. That's his purpose. And we're, we're watching as his plan plays out. The question we're asking today is, if Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and he is crushing his enemies, and he is sovereign over all things, which most Christians would agree with all three of those statements, then doesn't it have to be true that Jesus had something to do with the killing of this general? Uh, let's look at it from a different perspective. Uh, is the Iranian government an enemy of Jesus? Well, uh, all of this conversation assumes that what we have heard from the reports, from our president, uh, from, from people that seem to know, all of this assumes that uh, this general was an evil man, that he was responsible for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unlawful killings, murders, deaths, uh, that he is responsible for the murder of citizens from other nations like America, as well as in his own nation and surrounding nations, uh, that he was the mastermind behind lots of evil murder, killing, uh, that he had many more plans in place. Again, this, this assumes all of that is true, and we can only go on what is reported. None of us know firsthand, so we're going to assume that the reporting is true. If so, here's a man who has no desire to worship the one true God. Uh, he uh, presumably would see Christians as the enemy, as infidels, and he has plotted and succeeded in executing many Christians and many of those who uh, he considers his enemies. Does that make him an enemy of Jesus Christ? I think the answer has to be yes. He's not honoring Jesus. He's not for Jesus. And Jesus said, whoever's not for me is against me. He is um, not only committing evil acts like murder, but he is uh, plotting it out and planning widespread murder. He's arrogant, prideful, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on down the list of the things that uh, he is doing and his government is doing. He's an enemy of Jesus, and it seems to me there's no way to get around the answer that King Jesus crushed one of his enemies through this execution. 
if that, if that rubs us the wrong way, we have to ask the question, why? Now, part of, the, part of the problem comes is we think that that means that the instrument that Jesus uses must be pleasing to Jesus, that, 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 that he's righteous. In other words, the American government, Donald Trump, is, is righteous to acknowledge this means that, that we're saying that he's righteous. Well, if that's our position, then we're just not reading the Bible. The Bible says all over the place. We see this, especially, for instance, in the prophecy of Habakkuk. Uh, the thing that drove Habakkuk crazy, he, he could not reconcile these thoughts in his mind, was that God would use a wicked nation like Babylon to punish Israel, that he would give King Nebuchadnezzar or some other heathen king the power to crush his own people. God wouldn't do that. And yet throughout the Old Testament, we see over and over and over again, the way God punishes one nation is with another nation. And that says nothing about the righteousness of the nation that does the conquering. In fact, over and over again in the Old Testament, we see a, a heathen nation, a heathen king coming and destroying one people, and then God turning around and punishing that conquering king with another heathen king because, uh, so, so Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, if he comes and he's arrogant in his ability to destroy Israel, which he was, God says, I'm going to bring another king and, and destroy your kingdom someday because of your arrogance. That's how Jesus works. So it does not mean that America is inherently righteous or that Donald Trump is a worthy king simply because Jesus used him to take out one of his enemies. Again, there are all kinds of questions that are irrelevant to this conversation that we must not... Um, allow them to cloud our thinking here. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to think clearly. And it seems to me that if we do not acknowledge that King Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, including the American government and the Iranian government, and he had nothing to do with this, then we're basically saying Jesus is not actually ruling or he has, he's a distant ruler, uh, kind of the deistic mindset that he's just set the world in motion, and he is reigning in the hearts of Christians, but he's not actually doing anything else in the world, only in believers. That's not what the scripture says. He is crushing his enemies. We need to be willing to say that. First of all, I guess we need to be willing to believe that. And I'm not suggesting we go out and proclaim this from the highways and byways, especially in a situation where we can't offer the proper qualifications or keep the, the conversation on the main issue. But for us as believers who trust the word of God, we need to ask the questions, the question, what is Jesus doing in the world? He is building his kingdom and he is crushing his enemies. He's expanding his glory to fill the earth. And according to his secret providence and, and the way he does things, there are times when he decides that this particular ruler, or in this case, general, I'm going to take him out in order to build my kingdom. 
Now, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week, next month. Neither do you. I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know uh, what step in his strategy this particular action plays. I don't know what this means for the U.S. I don't know what it means for Iraq and Israel and other world powers and Russia, all, all that. That remains to be seen. So again, those are all questions beyond our ability to, to penetrate, and, and they're irrelevant to the question of whether or not Jesus was exercising his rule in taking out this Iranian general. I'm absolutely convinced King Jesus did this for his purposes, and he's building his kingdom. I believe the world uh, could be heading to greater peace because of it. Again, I don't know, speculating, wondering, pondering, but when Iran then fired back missiles wide of their target, it sure seems like they missed on purpose, which might be that the uh, Iranian government is realizing because of the economic sanctions that we've been placing on them. So they are, they're poor, they're getting poor by the minute. Uh, the U.S., the West, other other parts of the world are no longer dependent on Iran for oil, or or at least that whole region. I'm not sure where all the oil comes from, but whatever their their economic, whatever, however they were um, paying their bills, uh, we have put the squeeze on them, and they they seem to be poor. They there it appears to be that the people are protesting in the streets against the the government. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, instability in Iran right now. They are weakened. Maybe, just maybe, we have forced them to negotiate some real peace. I don't know. Maybe by the time you listen to this, they will have attacked and killed Americans and uh, something else will be happening. The point is, it's very possible that as the kingdom of peace that Jesus is building on this earth grows, that this is part of it. Somehow it is part of it. Let me say it that way. Somehow this is part of his building his kingdom. I don't know. And it doesn't mean it's going to get better necessarily. It could get worse before it gets better. But the point is, if Jesus is ruling over the kings of the earth, this is a king, or at least the, the right-hand man, the general, the top general of a king, and he is executed, I think the only Christian way to view this is to say King Jesus did something here. Now, again, we don't have to answer all the questions that are attached to this, and we should never assume that we know the plans of Jesus and what's happening. And this does not mean that every dictator that gets to live, Jesus is pleased with. It's not a matter of what he's pleased with. It's a matter of what did he do? What's he doing? So ponder this, wrestle with it. Think about it in your own mind and and let this drive you to faith to trust Jesus is building his kingdom. He is crushing his enemies. He is expanding his peace somehow, even through this. And the implications of what this means for our government. We'll, we'll talk more about this in the future. Uh, you know, we've got a big election this year, and we as Christians need to think like Jesus wants us to think regarding our election. But what do you really believe about Jesus reigning now? And what impact does that have on how you view the world? And what else is Jesus actively doing in your life that maybe you don't recognize? He is building his kingdom in your life, through you, in you, around you. And you might be missing it because you don't really believe it or because you've been trained not to see it. 
but let's retrain our eyes to see King Jesus on his throne. All right, so we come to the king's section where we're talking about men becoming kingly and ruling over this earth as Christ designed us to. Uh, if you have been with us, you know that we're talking about the, uh, the building the man, that we as men need to, to build ourselves, to strengthen ourselves so that we can build our households, so we can build the church, and so we can build the world. That's what uh, God has called us to do as men. And uh, we've, we, we've talked about how uh, when we build ourselves, we, we, we've been starting with the outer man, not because the outer man is more important than the inner man, but just for the reasons that we've been talking about in weeks past. Uh, so we've talked about uh, lifting weights and getting strong physically. We've talked about uh, health, uh, nutrition, and sleeping and all that. Today, I want to begin to talk about the inner man and how we as, uh, as men need to think, and we need to learn how to think, and we need to, to study how to think. But one of the things that gets in the way of studying, um, of, uh, of thinking well is that we have been influenced so much by a culture that tells men uh, not to think. It discourages thinking and instead says to men, you need to do two things. You need to feel and you need to fall in line. I mean, think about it. Isn't that what we're pushed toward? Feel, express your feelings, live in your feelings, uh, be motivated by your feelings, make decisions based on feelings. And then fall in line, do what you're told, go where you're supposed to go, follow the rules that society has, has placed out there for you. Um, it, it, going back to the first one on uh, replacing thinking with feeling and, and making decisions based on feeling, one of my pet peeves, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this that uh, some of you are going to be distracted by the fact that uh, episode 55 uh, belongs in the secret things of God and there is no episode 55 in our sequence. Well, one of the things that drives me crazy is how many people, instead of expressing, I think this, I believe this, they say, I feel this, right? Uh, I feel like it would be better to invest in this, uh, this uh, company over that company. I feel like the best thing to do would be to go to vocational training instead of college or whatever. None of that is based on feeling. It, well, if it is, you're, you're not using your mind well. Uh, we, we as men need to eliminate feeling from our vocabulary. I mean that. I mean that. Think about how often you talk about feeling in contexts that have nothing to do with feeling. Listen around to, to your wife, if you're married, to other people and, and think about how often they talk about feelings. Uh, I'm, I'm urging you, seriously, take me seriously in this. Try to eliminate all reference to feeling in what you say. This is not because there is no such thing as emotion uh, or that for men to experience emotion is, is evil, but we have, again, replaced thinking with feeling. Uh, do you even know what an emotion is? Could you define it? Does the Bible talk much about emotions? The answer is no, it really doesn't. Uh, it talks a lot about thinking and behaving and believing 
and choosing, but the Bible has very, very little to say about feeling. I think we as men will be better men and better thinkers if we eliminate the word feeling from our vocabulary. Where this, I was having this conversation with somebody just the other day, actually more than one, I've had this conversation quite a bit. Uh, in my marriage book, in my, in my book for uh, pre-married, for premarital counseling for engaged couples, and then there's a married version as well, uh, I talk about in there how when we feel hurt, we are being selfish. And it's true. When you feel hurt, you're being selfish. And I get pushback on this all the time. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just hurting. Well, who are you thinking about when you're hurting? Are you thinking about how you can love others? Are you thinking about the good of others? No, you're thinking about yourself. That is, by definition, selfish. And I've pressed a couple people lately to, to give me a, a definition of hurt feelings without using the word hurt or feelings. In other words, if it's a thing, we should be able to articulate it with other words. And both of these folks, and and I've had this conversation over and over again, really struggle to talk about what what they mean by hurt feelings without using those two words. And part of the reason is because every other thing that comes to mind to explain what hurt feelings are sound very selfish because they are. How many people live today out of what they call hurt feelings from things that happened in the past. But because we have framed it as hurt feelings, we are justified in our own mind to live in them, to think of them, and to treat others accordingly. Uh, think about the, uh, the idea of hurt feelings. Um, if, if somebody hurts me physically, if, if my arm is broken... And uh, you, ex- somebody expects me to use that broken arm to serve others. Well, that's an unrealistic expectation, right? Or, or, or let me take an extreme example. Uh, if I, as a man, became paralyzed from the, from the neck down, the duties I have to serve my wife, to... Um, uh, and I don't like that terminology, uh, to, to lead my wife, to pr- provide for my wife, to protect my wife, okay? Uh, those, those are commands given to me as a husband, and yet I cannot move anything below my neck. Nobody is reasonably going to say that I am failing to protect my wife if an intruder comes in and I am physically incapable of getting up and going to, to protect my wife from that intruder. I, I literally cannot get up because from my neck down, my body doesn't work. Well, what we do is we take what we call hurt feelings and we put them in the same category. I'm so wounded in my heart that though I should love my wife, think of a, think of a man who um, maybe was betrayed by uh, his first wife and he gets remarried, but he treats his second wife poorly and he, he's just an angry, bitter man because uh, he is so hurt by the betrayal of his first wife. And now he excuses in his mind, 
all the ways he doesn't love the second wife, the way he doesn't uh, protect her and provide for her, and he doesn't speak well to her and all the different sins. Well, but he's just so hurt. And a counselor, therapist would say, yes, he, he's got to deal with all this emotional pain. And we, we, we find symmetry between the person who is physically incapacitated and unable to do his duty and the one who is emotionally incapacitated and unable to do his duty. And my question is, does the Bible say anything about this anywhere? Is there even a hint of it? No, because the Bible doesn't talk about hurt feelings. We need to get to biblical and righteous understanding of uh, of who we are, what we're supposed to be doing in our inner man, if we're going to think well. That's that's where I want to go with all this, is help, helping clear out some of the, the clutter that keeps us from thinking well, so that we can think like Christ. We have the mind of Christ, let's think like it. And part of it is to not let the world's uh, preoccupation and immersion with uh, feelings get in the way of our thinking. The, the Bible uses words like this, and I would encourage you to do this as well. The Bible says Jesus had compassion on the hurting person. Have compassion. Uh, don't automatically put in that in the realm of feeling. Again, we all define feelings and emotions so, so differently. But when you see someone down, have compassion, and that leads to action. If you simply empathize with them a little bit, you're not doing them any good anyway. So who cares if you empathize with them? Jesus doesn't say just empathize with people. Uh, yeah, we're to mourn with those who mourn, but mourning is an action. It's not just a, oh, I feel sorry for them, feel sorry for them. No, it, mourn, go literally and weep with them when they weep. That's an action that you do. So if you see someone down, have compassion and do something. Uh, don't talk about feeling angry. Talk about becoming angry. When something makes you mad, you have become angry. What are you supposed to do with that anger? You are supposed to take control of it so that it doesn't take control of you. So do something. If you need to go for a walk, you need to go punch your punching bag. If you need to pray, you need to read the word, you need to go work out, pump some iron, lift weights, something to, to release, whatever. But the goal is to take control of that anger and not let it overpower you. You don't just feel angry. The Bible doesn't say anything about feeling angry. Grief, be grieved. When there is tragedy in your life, when there is loss of a loved one, grieve. The Bible talks a lot about grieving. It's a real thing. And maybe it does belong in the category of emotion and feeling. That's fine. But in your, in your mind, don't talk about feeling, talk about grieving. Again, there's action associated with that. Grieving comes out, or at least it wants to come out, and sometimes we have to hold it in. But don't just let the experience go. When we talk about and think about being hurt, again, we're not using, when we're talking about emotional pain, we're not using biblical terminology. There is, there, there's not a term in the Bible for emotional pain. We are offended. When someone sins against you, you are, there has been an offense given, right? Your, your wife speaks to you disrespectfully. You don't have hurt feelings because of that. You are offended. She offended you. 
It's an objective thing. She sinned against you. When you put it in biblical categories like that, now you have an action to take. What do I do? What am I commanded to do when my wife sinned against me? Not feel hurt, not be in a bad mood, not wallow in self-pity. No, I am to say, okay, she offended me. I can either go confront her on that and call her to repentance, or I can let love cover that sin, release her of it, forgive her of it, and move on. But as long as I put it in the category of feeling hurt, then I'm the victim and she wounded me. And now I have a, a, a perverted way in my own mind to twist it around and justify continuing to dwell on it and continuing to harbor ill will toward her. That is not a biblical, biblical concept. She offended me. This is how you need to think of it. When anytime you th- are, are tempted to feel hurt, someone does something you don't like, they they do something that is that is offensive to you. You need to put it in those categories. I'm offended, and I have biblical instruction on what to do with the offense. We really only have two options every time. We either go and rebuke and confront the one who's offended us or we cover it with love. I mean, if there was ever a man who had the right to, quote, feel hurt, unquote, by the actions of others, it's our King Jesus. I mean, think about what's going on when he's hanging on the cross. The people he made, the Roman government, he made, he was their creator. They drove nails through his hands and feet. The Jews, the ones he came to save, the Jewish people, his chosen people, were the ones clamoring for his crucifixion. Some of them just a week before saying, he's our king, behold, Hosanna. Now they're saying crucify him. And his closest friends, like Peter, who just a couple days before said, I will die for you, is asked three times, do you know Jesus? Nope, don't know the man. Everybody was against him. And then his father, his heavenly father, forsakes him on the cross. Does Jesus feel hurt? Does he talk about, oh, this is so hard? People wounded me? No. He says, Father, forgive these Romans. They don't know what they're doing. Looks down to John and says, John, take care of my mom, who's now your mom. He'd already told Peter, you're going to betray me, but I've prayed for you. And when you turn, go strengthen the brothers. And then Jesus shows up after the resurrection, says, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then go take care of my, my sheep. He does not call him out on his, how much he hurt him. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. He doesn't, doesn't withdraw from Peter because, oh, there's that mean man that hurt me. No, because Jesus is so focused on the thing that God has called him to, his mission He needs Peter to be effective in building his kingdom. So he says, Peter, go take care of my sheep. And what does Jesus say to the father as he hangs on the cross? Father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. I know what's going on here. I know why you're inflicting this pain on me. I trust you. 
not I'm hurt by you. Jesus was so focused on building his kingdom, on loving his father and and obeying his father, and on doing what he was sent here to do, he didn't have time to wallow in self-pity and talk about how hurt he is. Well, that's our example. That's our command. We are to be like Jesus. We are being conformed into his image. We cannot sit around and ponder how people feel about us and what they meant when they did this and said this and oh, boo-hoo, all. No, no. We have to be so focused on pleasing the King Jesus and building his kingdom. And as men doing what he's called us to do, building our household, regardless of how our wife and our children respond, we got to get after it. That's our mission. And building the church, it's part of our mission. And not everyone's going to like what we do in the church. So be it. Don't feel hurt. Get after it and make a difference. And building the world, subduing and ruling this world is what we're called to do as men. We have to think well in order to make that happen. And we will not think well if we're constantly caught up in feelings. So my challenge to you today is eliminate feeling from your vocabulary. And any other time when you would be tempted to use the word feeling, replace it with a biblical concept or word. And don't become a victim to what other people do and say. Your mission is to exalt Christ, to please Christ, to pursue building his kingdom, his world, his church. Think feelings will be feelings. Yeah, they're real. But make it a non-issue. Think and do. All right, so as we come to the shepherds section of episode 57, uh, we're going to continue in Titus 1, looking at the qualifications for an elder. And, uh, and, and the reason we're going through this is for those of you who are pastors and elders, you need to be looking for men who meet the qualifications or who seem to be on the path to becoming this kind of man, because you need to bring more elders in. You need to train them up and you need to uh, give them uh, leadership in the church and, and build the ministry with, with good leaders. And so they need to be men who are like this. So we made it uh, last week through chapter 1, verse 7, and today we'll pick up in verse 8. He says, they are to be hospitable people. Uh, there is a, there's a, a, a contrast that the NAS here puts a, but in there, it's a, it's a lot, it's, a, it's rather, it's a very strong contrast. Uh, and so what he's contrasting here says, uh, being hospitable in contrast to the one who is fond of sordid gain. So I think part of this is, um, we talked last week about elders should not be money hungry people and just seeking, uh, to get rich for the sake of getting rich and certainly not through any um, sinful means, but the, the contrast to that is someone who is hospitable, who welcomes, literally the, the word means strangers, who, who welcome strangers into their homes. Uh, and, and to do that means you have to be generous. You're, you're, it takes time, it takes money to provide for them, to feed them, uh, maybe to put them up for the night. That's, you know, kinds of things we talk about hosp- hospitality. So the idea is instead of uh, gathering up money to use on my stuff, 
It's uh, I'm generous with my time and money, and I welcome people and am willing to spend that time to encourage them and uh, have them in my home and, and those sort of things, which does cost us. Uh, you know, when I look at the, the amount of money that I spend on coffee and food and electricity and all that to have people in, in our home, and yet our home is regularly filled with people from the church, and then we've opened up our home for people to stay with us and sleep in the spare bedroom or kick my, kick my son. I don't have a spare bedroom in the moment, but we kick my son out of his room, and uh, that, that costs us as a family family. Uh, my son doesn't love that every time, uh, but he's willing to do it. And, you know, we've got a shower down here and that, that takes time and money to, to be a blessing to others. That's the kind of man that uh, should be leading and shepherding the people of God. Uh, then he uses another word here, loving what is good. Uh, that's, a, that's a strong term, loving what is good. What is, what is right, what is pure, what, what is, is, um, is beneficial, what is godly, uh, not just going through the motions of it, but actually loving what is good. Uh, that's the kind of man that, that needs to be in the position of leadership. Uh, sensible, he says, and this goes along with what we talked about in the first two sections of this podcast and continue to describe in other areas. You need men who can think well. I mean, the whole discussion we had about uh, the Iranian general, uh, you need to help men think like that to, to, to wrestle with these things uh, from the scripture and a scriptural paradigm for thinking and not the worldly thinking. And, 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 and think well, and then that spills over into their practical application, their practical decision-making, uh, what to do with their money, what to do with their time, um, how to vote, politics, everything. They need to be people who, who have, um, I was going to say common sense, but it seems like common sense is not so common anymore, but, but who, who have a control of their thinking, who are not driven by their emotions, and, and who make good decisions. Who are wise? Who who study the proverbs and and put on the mind of Christ? Those are the kind of men. Uh, he also says just men who are righteous. Uh, what that means is the decisions they make are based on righteousness. They are not easily persuaded by someone's opinion. They don't care what the people in the congregation think. You know, they're they're not going to lead the church based on a popularity contest or the latest polls. Or not, they're not driven along by the winds of what uh, what will make people happy in their congregation. No, they're they're going to do the right thing. Uh, you know, this this comes into play in things like church discipline in in all of its forms, not just the the extreme of excommunication, but just rebuking, correcting those kind of things. You don't want a person in an elder position who is afraid to call out. Uh, an influential person, someone who gives a lot to the church, for instance, uh, you know, there's a temptation there to to not want to aggravate them because we'll lose a lot of money. And especially if you're in a smaller church where you, losing one or two big givers could impact everything, you can't have elders who are going to make decisions based on uh, the opinions of others, even if it means losing a couple of those, uh, those big givers. When it comes to uh, what you preach and teach, and you know, if you're going to have elders saying we should do a series on this or we should go through this book, 
you don't want guys who are saying, you know, let's let's avoid the controversial topics, let's avoid the hard topics, let's let's just be nice. That's not a just decision. You need guys who are, you know, again, we talked about being not being pugnacious. They shouldn't go looking for a fight, but who are going to decide justly what is a good thing for us to teach? What what are the positions we're going to hold uh, based on scripture, not based on um, Opinions, so they need to be just. They need to be decision makers who make the right decision, not an emotional one or being persuaded by others. Devout is a word here that shows up in verse six. Uh, I'm sorry, verse eight. Devout men, uh, they're pious. They they pursue Christ uh, from their heart. They are hungry to read His Word and hungry to be righteous. And they pray and they they fellowship and they come to corporate worship and they they go through the spiritual disciplines of uh, of honoring Christ and and building themselves up in Christ. And you can just you, you can tell. Um, uh, if you spend time with them, you you can tell um, what uh, at least eh, we we don't we can't read minds and we we can't truly discern someone's heart, but we can at least get a sense of whether this person as they as they pray out loud as they as they talk about what they've learned in the scripture, you can get a sense of um, uh, how much time they actually spend doing those things. Uh, and so that's part of it. And, and again, it's, this is all as far as you can tell. There, there are always going to be people who, who pull the wool over our eyes. But as, as you can tell, you need to find men who, who are pursuing the things of God. And self-controlled. Uh, empowered is one possible trans, translation of this word. So there's, a, there's an inner power here where these, if a man's going to be an elder, he, he, in order to do all these other things we've been talking about, they have to have power within themselves. They have to have strength. And remember, this is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So uh, as, a, as they mature in Christ, they, they must have more self-control and more inner power so that they can control their feelings, control their thinking, control their words, uh, make good decisions, uh, pursue just uh, decisions, uh, not drink too much beer, uh, on and on and on, not, not fly off the handle when things don't go well, not be swayed by popular opinion. All those things require self-control, inner power, strength of character kinds of things. So again, go look for these men in your church. Look around now. If you haven't done this since we started talking through this, today, just determine today you're going to look for somebody in your church, some man who has a lot of these qualities, who can either be trained or maybe they're already mature enough. You just need to take the action to bring them uh, to the elder board and let them serve and shepherd the sheep of God. The sheep need shepherds. They need good shepherds. And the church is stronger if we have better leaders. And if you're a leader now, part of your responsibility is to raise up more. All right. Well, that does it for episode 57. I am so glad you joined me and uh, we'll be back next week, Lord willing, to uh, talk more about these things. Uh, In the meantime, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast so that it comes right into your player, I would encourage you to do that. Also, I would be very thankful if you would rate this podcast on iTunes. Uh, That's helpful to us. You can follow me on Twitter at Doug Gooden. That's at D-O-U-G. 
G-O-O-D-I-N. And if you haven't seen on Facebook, we're doing a, uh, a free giveaway of a book, any book from the Cross Crown catalog uh, this month. And, uh, and it's free, but there is one, uh, one, one thing that you have to do in order to get the free book. So check it out on our Cross to Crown Ministries Facebook page to see how we will send you a, uh, any book from the Cross to Crown collection. So check that out. Uh, you can like our page and that'll, uh, it's pinned to the top of that. So that'll be good for you. Uh, I believe that's all I've got to say. For those of you who listened to the podcast a couple of weeks ago, there's still there's also another free book giveaway uh, that some of you have signed up for. So if you missed those episodes, uh, go back and check that out. Uh, that's all I got. Until next week, uh, live intentionally Christ-obsessed in all things. <laughs>